Okay, so I'll open it up for questions. I've definitely got some places we can go further, but um, first, any any questions from what we covered this morning? Show, show of hands, show of hands, quick, quick survey. How many of you had considered before the possibility, had heard before the possibility that that regeneration, being born again, whatever biblical phrase you want to use, is the cause and not the effect of faith. How many of that might, was that a new idea for? Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was a new idea thrown out. I know when I first encountered it, it was. And one of the places we can go look at, if you guys don't have any questions, is another place where I think something similar is taught in John 3, actually. But before we do that, yes. For how many of you, was it a new idea or a new thought, first time you'd heard or considered the idea that, would it pick your biblical metaphor, being born again, regeneration, being brought to life, having the veil removed, being given eyes that see and ears that hear, having a heart of flesh replace a heart of stone, um, any one of those biblical metaphors is the cause, not the effect of faith. Okay. No, no. It's a nuance. It's a, nu- it's a nuance. So I, I, I'm not trying to throw that out to make, well, you're surprised. You, I, I expected that to be a new idea for many people. And so uh, if you guys, maybe we can start there with questions if you have questions about that. Mr. Olsgaard. I don't know if it's well framed, but I could think of um, someone coming back and asking this question. Well, if God initiates our salvation, you said he initiates it, and then we believe and are saved. Can God, um, I'm thinking of, you know, just somebody making an argument maybe from Hebrews 6, you know, uh, keep slipping on me. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the spirit and tasted and so on. So could, can someone... And I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it. Uh, can someone reject this then and sort of be made alive to faith and then say, no, nah, I don't want it? Um, no, I don't. Kind I of think, thing? No, I don't think yeah, so. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to come at it textually as opposed to systematically. Mm-hmm. Um, in the systematic approach, if you've ever heard the acrostic tulip, um, the, the, the you, no, the I in tulip is irresistible grace. All that the Father draws will come, though Jesus says, all who the Father's given will come to me. And the, simply put, the, the, the renational, go, go, to, go to 2 Corinthians 4. I like, I like this is a slightly different metaphor in 2 Corinthians 4. But, um, but I, I think I can make my point clearly there. Um, and again, this notion of it being, um, you can use different words, inceptive. It, be, it initiates, or you can, you can look at it, uh, another way people talk about it is monergistic as opposed to synergistic. Um, whatever term you want. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul tells us why people perish. Why do unbelievers perish? In verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, now here the metaphor is not life and being alive or dead or being born or unborn. It's seeing or not seeing, being blind or seeing, and he uses the image of a veil blinding you. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
So the issue is not that they see the gospel rightly and are not interested in it. If, if you've heard the gospel and you're not interested in it, you don't understand it. You, in other words, there's people who see and they don't see. There's no people who see and don't come and embrace Christ. There's nobody who sees Christ without, with the veil removed, seeing him, seeing the gospel and the glory of the gospel rightly, who then says, I'd rather have money or fame or wealth or riches or my Xbox. In the case of those who perish, it's because they don't see. Um, and again, I think this is a good illustration to show you can't embrace by faith what you don't see. So the whole picture here is, is uh, and John Piper uses this analogy. You're in a hotel room. You're standing in front of the full picture windows. The curtains are closed, and then someone opens the curtains, and you see that you're looking out on a vista of the Alps on a glorious sunny day. And it just elicits a response in you. And so you're, you're, the, the word of God is present. The gospel is present. You're uninterested in it. It doesn't mean much to you. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the blinds are pulled back, and you see, and it clicks. Oh, wow. Now, you freely, no one's making you, no one's twisting your arm. You, you want, you embrace Christ. You, you reach out to him and take hold of him by faith, even as he takes hold of you. But you can't do that while you've got a veil in front of your face. So the notion of cause and effect here, I think, is equally clear. There'd be another place where I'd point to that there's an act of God. In this case, the imagery is the removing of a veil that necessarily at least logically precedes. And when I say logically precedes, I don't want to make it sound like, well, at 2.03, the veil is removed, and at 2.04, I'm simply using cause and effect imagery. The, what causes people to perish is they're blinded from seeing the gospel of Christ as it is, and the solution, and look what he compares it to, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, what's that referencing? When did God say, let light shine out of darkness? Genesis 1. In response to what? Is God acting alone? No one said, hey, God, it'd be a great idea. The darkness didn't say, please, please say light. The whole point of Genesis 1 is God acting on his own good pleasure, freely, sovereignly, in response to no one and nothing speaking light. Let there be light. Not without reason, simply nothing outside. He's not, nothing is acting upon him initiating this. This is the overflow of his good pleasure. And he's saying, just like that, God spoke light into our hearts. He turned the lights on and we saw. The light switch turns on. And we go, oh, now that does not mean we aren't. So, so to answer your question, I do not believe the lights are turned on and someone chooses, nah. If they, if they reject the gospel, we were told in verse 3, it's because they're blinded. So if they're not blinded, they're not going to reject the gospel. Um, and not because anyone's making them, but because Christ is lovely. And so if you don't see him as lovely, you don't see him, at least not rightly. Is that okay? No, no. Okay. No, but it's, it's a good question. It's a good question. And, and I'm trying to make the point that it's not constraint any more than when you look over, finally look over the edge of the, of the Grand Canyon, you go, whoa. Like that. If you're seeing the Grand Canyon, if it's not a foggy day, it's going to elicit a response from you. But no one's making you do that. You are freely responding and on and wonder. Well, it's the same thing. When you see, when the, when the veil is removed and you understand what's the glory of God and the grace of God and the gospel, you, like a man who found a treasure in a field, you, 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 in your joy, you sell everything that you might possess it. Um, okay. Other questions on this? Yes, Jackie. Is it on? Yes. Okay. How does that 
this might be a dumb question, but how does that go with Romans 1, where it talks about those who suppress the truth? Oh, no, that's, that's what we're doing. That's another picture, I think, of deadness. I think it's another picture of deadness, that in Romans 1, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, for what may be known about God is plain to them, for God has made it plain to them. So part, partly of, even in, in Ephesians 2, Paul's not making the point that it's not their fault because they're dead. It, it, we'd be wrong to consider, well, what else can they do? They're dead. His whole point is like, no, they're, they're, they're actively walking around in sin. They're walking according to the prince of this of this world. They are by nature children of wrath, and one of the things they do is even though there's evidence of God around them, they willfully, they, they intentionally, they purposely suppress that knowledge. Absolutely. We're not to conclude from Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that these poor people who have no choice, and it's not their fault, and there's nothing they can do. No, we're supposed to say they're guilty of sin. They're doing all these things. They're walking after the course of the world. They're being worked upon by the devil. They're carrying out willingly, gladly desires of the flesh and the mind. The question is, what happens to stop someone from suppressing the truth? So I'll use myself as an example. 1999, summer of 1999, I stopped suppressing the truth. Why? I'm going to say because God did something in my heart. And... I began to read my Bible. I began to become convicted of sin. I began to ask questions. I began reaching out, talking to people. And somewhere in late July, early August of 1999, I became, I became to faith. The Lord birthed me. And, I, and I, you know, I was born again. And I was saved. And I was adopted. And I received an inheritance. All that. What changed from me being uninterested in those things? I mean, those are the, the truths of the gospel I've known intellectually all my life. Can't get me, I can't remember learning. As, as far back as I can go, my mom won the tug of war with my father. My father was a religious nominal Catholic, by which I mean he was very religiously holding to his nominal Catholicism. Um, is that fair enough, Mom? Yes. Um, in other words, the bit of Catholicism he held to, which was a fair bit, he did very religiously. Um, she won the tug of war, and I got to go to the Christian um, elementary school. Or even before elementary? was it? What, what grades? What was... So I, I can't remember learning. I, I can't remember the day I showed up to class and learned the propositional truths of the gospel. You know, you're a sinner. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Son of God, and he's the Son of man. He's fully God. He's fully man. He died, and it's by faith and not through work. I can't remember learning that. Like As far back as I go in my memory, that knowledge is there. It's similar to the knowledge that you know the, the sun is a star that the earth orbits around. I mean, it didn't affect my life, but it was... It was the content, the propositional content was there. I didn't start caring about it until the summer of 1999. Why? Why did I stop suppressing that truth? I'm suppressing that truth. The truth is given to me, and I'm holding it down, and I'm holding it down. What stops me suppressing and actually saying, actually, I want to understand it? I'm going to say something God did in my heart, not something I did. The only alternative I've got to come up with is some little fleck of good in me was floating around, finally got control of the wheel long enough to cause me to want to look into these things. And you're going to, and this, is, this is why, one of the reasons why the reformers were so dogmatic on these things, why what's called Calvinism um, is associated with the Reformation, why Luther wrote a book on the bondage of the will arguing with Erasmus, why, why Calvin's institutes talk about this. By the way, Calvinism, and I, and I won't defend Calvinism because it can mean 20 different things to different people, but the doctrines... I'm, 
And the right company are quite comfortable calling myself Calvinistic or even a Calvinist. I, I don't generally do that because it doesn't matter. The biblical truth matters. But um, the reason why the reformers made such a big deal of this is precisely because they're trying to establish salvation by grace. It's the exact same point Paul is making. So Paul sets this up, this big, long, you were, but God was, even though you were, now here's what God did by grace, you've been saved. Because he wants to make it clear that God is not saving the people when you, look at, when you look at the bird's eye view of all of humanity, those who, who, who come to faith in Christ and those who don't, what is the decisive difference? And you're, at the end of the day, going to either land on something in the people who chose Christ is a little different than the people who didn't. And that something, however you define it, has got to be better. The part of me that wanted Jesus when the person next to me didn't is a better part than the part that didn't, right? There's no way around that, logically. Whether you want to say it's smarter or it's ethically better... The part of me, the thing that was present in me that made me want Christ that isn't present in the person next to me is superior, right? However you want to define it, it's better. It is better to want Christ than to not want Christ. Well, where did that better thing come from? And if it's not the gift of God, it's innate. Now the good, smart people get saved and the bad, dumb people go to hell. And the reformers were very aware that Rome was going to, they're, they're fighting with Rome over justification by grace as opposed to by works. And so that's, it's not a coincidence that these issues were, were so heavily laid out and fought over because everyone understood salvation by grace alone hung on. Um, so if it wasn't, if the answer to the question, what's happened 20 years ago, is not God, but God did something, but rather, but Jeremy did something then I got something to boast in. I got something to take credit for that the guy next to me didn't do. And so that's, so absolutely, we're, I mean, this is not meant to nullify our activity. We're meant to be seen as very active in our rebellion, very responsible in our rebellion. We are at work, we're walking, the walking dead. Pardon my title from last week, I couldn't resist. Um, it was the walking dead. It was the title, well, you're dead in your sins, in which you walked. Um, and, uh, and so we're seen as active. We're following, we're doing things, we're carrying out the desires. But we're helpless to switch teams whenever we want. I mean, Jesus makes the point, whoever you serve is your master. And so we chose sin as our master. Okay, now we are not free. Like, actually, I don't want sin to be my master anymore. I want Jesus to be my master. Like, too late. We're set in our course unless something happens in our heart. So there's, I see no, this is a long answer, I see no conflict. I see perfect harmony in what Romans 1 makes clear. You're busy holding down truth. You're busy making yourself blind. I mean, Romans 1 paints a picture. You're like a kid in a room going, I can't see or hear you, sticking your fingers in your ears, covering your eyes, going, no, no, no. That's what we're all doing, walking around in our our trespasses and sin. The question is, what happens to stop that? And something like, a veil being taken off, or eyes being given, or ears being given, or a heart of stone being replaced by a heart of flesh, or being birthed, or being regenerated, or being made alive, something. Those are all, I think, biblical ways of looking at that change happens, which is the ultimate cause in me of then me truly believing in, turning to Christ. Um, but I don't just one day decide, you know what, I think I will turn to Christ. Yeah. Tune on this for a while. Um, 
something has to happen in my heart first. Does that, am I answering your question or am I going off? You're looking thoughtful. Be thoughtful, no, that's fine. But. Oh, yes. What, what do you, no, go for it. What do you mean there, for, the, for the posterity's sake? What, what, uh, what do you mean? What, what, what am I saying? Well, if it's, that seems I, know, I know it's God that does it, but if they're without excuse. Okay, I see. So here's, here's the analogy I'll, I'll use. Um, is Greg Rolak? He's not here. I used Greg last time I gave this example. I'll use Greg again. Um, here's, here's, the, here's the important bit. Our helpless state is our fault. That's why we're without excuse. Um, we're without excuse like someone who's become a crack cocaine addict willfully. They chose to do it. They sought it out. Like they, you know, um, I mean, it's just by the grace of God that I didn't get into heavy drugs. I wanted to. Like all the rock stars that I emulated and admired were. I just wasn't, thank the Lord, was not at the right parties at the right time. But if I'd, if I'd gotten into that, it would have been my own fault. It wouldn't have been the victimized story. It would have been Jeremy was seeking it out. I just am thankful I was in a small boondocks town in New Hampshire and was at the wrong parties. Like, praise God, hallelujah, amen. Um, but I would have been one of those people who, yeah, I did it to myself. But I could get to a point where I'm a slave and I'm not free to put it down, but I have no excuse. I, I, I gouged my eyes out to switch metaphors. I pierced my eardrums. So the analogy that I used, I stole straight from R.C. Sproul. Um, imagine I, I go on vacation with my family and I hire Greg Rolak to mow my lawn. And, um, and Greg and I have this conversation. I say, Greg, it's really important you mow the lawn. If, if I expect you to do it. I don't care if you get sick. I don't, you need, if you, once you agree to do it, and I'm going to pay you, you need to do it. And he says, okay. I say, additionally, there's a pit in the corner of my, my yard. You need to stay away from it because you could fall in that pit, and then you'd be stuck. He says, okay. So you understand. You stay away from the pit. Stay away from that tree with the fruit. Stay away from the pit and mow my lawn. I give him, I mean, my example would be a law. One, one, he agrees in this case to the law, but he agrees to some obligation. He's obligated to me to do something, to perform something, and he's been told to stay away from something. So I, I get in my car, my family, we drive off, and he looks, he, the second he sees us going down the road, he runs over and he jumps in the pit. Knowing what he's doing, he didn't trip, you know, he just went, jumped in the pit. I come home a week later, my lawn's overgrown, and I go over and I say, Greg, you, you would have promised me Come hell or high water, you promised me you would mow my lawn. He says to me, you can't blame me, I'm stuck in a pit. That's, uh, you can't blame me, you didn't, no. If, if, if the reason I'm stuck is my own fault, then I have no excuse. And so we blind ourselves and we deafen ourselves and we suppress the truth and we, get, and we are stuck in that setting, much like uh, the picture of addiction. You do something long enough and it enslaves you. Oh, yeah, we get to a point where we are not free to stop. But it's our own fault. In fact, our slavery becomes proof of our guilt, not an excuse of it. Um, does, that, does that make sense? No, no, I know we're tempted to say it, but the Bible's emphatic. We did this to ourselves. Our condition is our fault. Even in Ephesians 2, we are choosing to walk after the court. We're willingly doing it. We're, no, one's make, no one's twisting arm. We are gladly carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we are... Let's, let's go to John 3. Oh! No, well, but, but only in the way that you don't have options because you gouged your eyes out. It's not my fault I can't see. I don't have eyes. If, it is your fault if you gouge them out. 
Maria. Well, in light of all this, the part that I'm struggling most with is yeah. that it was Adam's fault. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Original, the doctrine of original sin is really the issue. You track the cord back to the wall on all of the... No, no, absolutely. If you track the cord back to the wall on, on the issues of election, predestination, the sovereignty of God, and it lands with Augustine's debate with Pelagius over original sin. It absolutely does. Um, tur turn to John 3, by the way. We'll get there. And I'll explain the, the backdrop. Because Augustine is a bishop in uh, North Africa in the 4th century, I want to say, or 5th. 4th or 5th century. 4th? 4th century. And um, as legend has it, what? Uh, Okay. Well, I guess Sproul knows better now, doesn't he? Um, so, Augustine. No good. R.C. Sproul says Augustine. Okay, fine. Anyway, um, Augustine prays something like this in the church. Augustine? Augustine. Okay. Okay. The bishop prays, prays something like, Lord, command us to do as you will and give us the grace to do as you command. And um, the story I heard, I say the story, I doubt it was something as simply sitting there praying and Pelagius overhears and says, hey. But, but they start debating this issue. And, and, and to Pelagius, he says, he, his position is God is ethically obligated to enable us to do what he commands. He would be unjust if he commanded us to do something we could not do. And, and Pelagius and Pelagianism, as the heresy is named after him, I want you to get how sympathetic is where he's coming from. He's trying to defend, in his view, the, the integrity and the righteousness of God. So, so Augustine, Augustine prays, um, Lord, Tell us to do whatever you want to do. Command us as you will. It seems good to you. And then, Lord, second petition, please give us the grace to do what you command. And, and Pelagius says, whoa, God is obligated. He, he could not righteously judge you. He would not be a righteous judge if he told you to do something you couldn't do. To which Augustine, or Augustine, um, the bishop says something like, and I'm cutting short probably books of writing, Okay, God calls on us to be sinlessly holy as he is holy. You can't do that. To which Pelagius gives some consideration and says, you're right, I don't believe we're born. I believe, you're right, I believe we have to be able to live sinless lives. So full-fledged Pelagianism is the teaching that man is born righteous, sinless, and it is fully possible for a man to live a sinless life. And, that's, and that gets rejected condemned as heresy by the early church, and I believe they condemned it rightly. But understand the rationale, because you're pushing it to its conclusion. If I can't do, if, if I need grace to obey God, then how can God punish me for not obeying him? Okay. If you're going to hold on to that, then we must, either God must not require sinlessness, or it must be possible without grace, without aid, for us to be sinless. This is what I'm saying. Smarter people than us have thought through their conclusions, and that's where it gets to. You're either going to have to say God doesn't require sinless perfection, 
or sinless perfection is possible without any help from God, or you're going to have to concede Augustine's prayer as righteous and valid. You're going to have to get there. And so the debate centers on, and the issue, if you, if you want to read up on this, if you've got a copy of Grudem, he does a fair job reading this, is in what state is man born? Now, full-on Pelagianism says man is born sinless. And it's simply a philosophical commitment to upholding the righteousness of God as he sees it. Now, most people don't hold to full-on Pelagianism, but his half-brother, semi-Pelagianism, is alive and well in the American church. And semi-Pelagianism, you've heard this, man's born with a good dog and a bad dog. He's going with a little good and a little bad in him. He's got both, and whichever one you feed more is going to take charge. That's semi-Pelagianism. In that view, man is not dead, he's dying. That's what I was getting at when I said, Paul doesn't say you were dying, you were sick. Because in that view, it goes something like this. Each one of us is born, we're going to sin. We've got a bent for sin. We're, we're coming to this world predisposed to sin. But there's still some good in us. Now, we may eventually snuff that out. We may eventually sin so much that even that gets right. But there's still some, there's some part of us that without any help from God, without any grace from God, on its own, can see Jesus as beautiful and desirable. I don't need help. I don't require grace to want Christ. That's the conclusion of semi-Pelagianism. Yes, there's plenty in me that doesn't want him, but there's still some part of me that's good. When I, when I teach on this issue, I taught on it with the youth, I use this analogy. Um, this is, by the way, what's known as the, the, the doctrine of total depravity. Not to be confused with utter depravity. And these, and these terms um, are unimportant. The concepts behind them are. But in case you want to look this up, in case you want to read up on it, in case you want to Google it, we're talking about total depravity. Um, utter depravity, here's the way to distinguish the two. If I take a five-gallon bucket, fill it with water, put some blue dye in it, stir it up, and then I take a 100% cotton, pure white Hanes t-shirt, and I dunk it in the water, and I dunk it, and I, you know, I wring it in there, how much of that shirt when I come out is going to be white? None of it. Now, it could get darker and darker and darker shades of blue, right? But there's no white left. Total depravity is simply recognizing there is no part of us that is not fallen. There is no part of us that is protected from the contamination of the leaven of sin. Utter depravity would be saying that we are as wicked as we could be, which is not the case. You can harden your heart. You can sear your conscience. You can progress further. In the latter times, people will be lovers of self. It goes on. You can get worse. Total depravity is talking about extent. And there is no little holdout portion of you that wants righteousness. That's John 3. Everyone knows, we'll start at John 3, 16. And we'll go. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So either Jesus or John, because there's also no quotation marks in the New Testament. Greek doesn't have them. 
So some of your Bibles may have red letters there. It's not clear where at the end of John 3, Jesus stops talking to Nicodemus and John, the narrator, picks back up. I tend to think, at the very least, John, the narrator, is speaking at 19. Could be wrong. Doesn't matter. Because either way, you've got God talking through the Spirit. It may additionally be the Son of God talking as quoted by the Spirit, or it may be John, the narrator, talking. Either way, you're dealing with the Word of God, so it makes no practical difference of, of, of importance. But what you get is a summary. This is the judgment, or you could, you could translate it, this is the conclusion. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, pause, and how many people are in the group, those who do wicked things? Everyone. So you could just even get rid of those who do wicked, just everyone. Understand the everyone of verse 20 is every human being who's ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who does wicked things. All people in time and space, people yet born, people who haven't been, who lived back thousands of years ago, everyone other than Jesus fits into this clause. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Which I think is a very helpful way of describing it. Because there's nothing stopping them other than their own lack of desire. There's no invisible wall. There's nothing preventing them other than, I hate the light. I want to get as far away from that nasty light as I can. I hate it. Why do I hate it? I do wicked things. And the light exposes my wicked things, and I hate it. And so if I can do what I want, I run away from it. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. So if somebody comes to the light, something in that equation has to change. But you could hardly offer an excuse, I couldn't do anything else than run from the light. It's not my fault. Well, why, why do you run from the light? Well, because I hate it. But it's not my fault that I hate it. No, it, it is precisely your fault that you hate it. Um, so the the... The original sin, which is what we're getting to, which is probably the, the heaviest, and we can talk about this. Um, by the way, I, I can post it up on Facebook for those of you who are friends with me on Facebook, but I think four years ago, right around Christmas time, we did a message on Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and the message on Genesis 3 was about the fall, and then there was one more message dealing specifically with what, what was the effect of Adam's fall on us. So the message on Genesis 3 was, let's look at the fall. And then the, the fourth one deals precisely with original sin. And I can post that up, and you can get a slightly longer treatment. Um, but the Bible is insistent in, in probably Romans 5, 12 and following is the clearest teaching on original sin, as through one man's sin to the world. But the Bible insists that we are really guilty in Adam. We're really guilty. Go to, go to, go to Romans 5. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 teaches this pretty well. Other passages in the Bible assume it. So in Psalm 51, where David says, in sin I was conceived, he's applying the reality of, of original sin and total depravity. You've heard me say before, we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. I'm getting it root versus fruit. I came into this world a sinner before I ever sinned in time and space. And that's because of Adam. So Romans 5, this, this, by the way, is super heavy stuff. So if, if you're like, whoa, that's a lot of stuff, fair enough. 
You're asking, this is a heavy topic, you're asking good questions. I don't want to pretend that I'm trying to do a sufficient or exhaustive treatment today, which is why I'll try to point to some resources. But I'd encourage you, just go read Romans 5, 12 through the rest of the chapter. But what Paul is going to insist, I'll jump back, what Paul's going to insist is this. Just as Christ's righteous life is credited to us, really, it's not a fiction, we really are righteous in Christ, so then, in the same way, Adam's disobedience is credited to us. You're going to see the just as, so then. This is the comparison, just like Adam, so Jesus, just like Adam, so Jesus. And if you say, well, it's not fair that I'm charged with what Adam did, then you got him say, it's not fair that I get credited with what Christ did as well. They're a mixed, they're a mixed pair. They come together. So if you've if you got a problem with being found guilty in Adam, you need to have the same problem with being counted righteous in Christ. So here, I just want to show you that Paul teaches this first. Then we can talk about what to make of it. So, therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The short, short version is this. Paul's saying only lawbreakers can be guilty of sin, and there was this time period between Adam and Moses where there was no divine law. The people between Adam and Moses died, though, proving they're sinners, because only sinners can die, because death only spreads to sinners, and you can only become a sinner if you're a lawbreaker. So what law did the people who lived between Adam and Moses die? I mean, what did they break? There's only one option. Don't eat. That, that's the simplicity of Paul's argument. I'm going to move on. I unpack that passage over 20 minutes or so in that message that I'll try to get up later today. I want to show you the application. So there's the rationale. There's the argument for it. Then 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace than that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, look at this, the many were made sinners. There it is. One man's disobedience, you and I were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so right there, just as Adam, how do you understand Christ's death and how do we receive his righteousness? Well, it's the same way we, we were counted sinners in Adam. Just as so then. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, the simple answer is this. We understand the notion of a representative head when we elect them. Um, so if the U.S. ambassador, rightly appointed and elected or, or appointed by an elected official rightly, enters into a treaty or incurs a national debt, we recognize that we citizens of this country are bound by that treaty and we have incurred that debt, right? And no one cries foul 
But we're a country founded under the cry, no taxation without representation. Without representation. We didn't vote for you. Not my president, right? And God didn't consult us when he chose our head. We didn't get to vote for Adam. So we can then say, well, okay, I... I, I, we can either then trust God chose a right, fitting, and good head for us, or we can say he stacked the deck. I would encourage the former and not the latter. But that's what we're left with. And, and we see he chose the right Savior for us. <laughs> he didn't make a mistake there. Um, as R.C. Sproul has said, if, if you say, well, you know, I didn't choose Adam, you would have sinned and eaten the fruit faster than Adam. Um, Adam was the best possible representative for us, and God in his wisdom knows that. But what's clear is that Paul teaches us. I'm just trying to show you that that's what Paul teaches. We can spend days and months discussing the how and the why of it, but just to settle the issue, is it true that because of what Adam did, you and I were reckoned, counted, made to be sinners? That's what Paul says in Romans 5. And, and I get with the shortage of time, I'm not remotely... This is a heavy topic, and the implications of that are huge. And so I, I don't want to pretend that there's your five-minute answer, and well, probably ten minutes at this point. You should be settled. I'm mainly just trying to say, first and foremost, I think that's what the Bible teaches. And then we can try to process that and, and, and come to grips with that and, and understand that. But yeah, I think Romans 5, 12 and following, more clearly than anywhere else, explicitly makes that clear. Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 15. Many other places in the Bible assume this, but as regards to places where it's explicitly looked at and stated, I think this is about as strong as anybody. I do think it's clear. It's hard, and at the end of the day, get this, this will surprise you, we've got to trust God that he knows what he's doing. Right? No, no, at the end of the day, I, I've got to trust that it's good and fitting and right of God to make Adam my representative, that he chose well that he chose fairly, that, that it wasn't an unrighteous choice. i got to trust him at that. I think he's given me plenty of reason to trust him for that. But no, I totally got to trust him. And we tend to feel, hey, look, if I didn't pick him, if I didn't vote for him, then no way. And God's chose our representative. He chose our head. And we can either raise our fist and complain, or we can, okay. And this is admittedly heavy, hard stuff, but it, it, yeah, I think it's what the Bible plainly says. And that's ultimately why August, then August, Augustine <laughs> challenged back and why the church condemned Pelagius because no, this is what it says. And so we can submit our minds to what God says in his word or we can, you know, um, go. And, and, it's, it's, and let me be clear, it is totally different and totally okay to say, yes, dad, I don't understand, but okay, that's awesome. Like, wrestle with this, work through this. The problem is, is when you do what Pelagius did, I don't care what the Bible says, this doesn't make sense, I don't like it, so I won't believe it. So, like, by all means, be children who wrestle with and struggle with understanding and seeing the beauty in what their father says. Just know it is beautiful, wise, and good, and just uh, help me see the goodness. Help me see the beauty. Help me see the wisdom in this God. I know it is good, wise, and beautiful. Help me to see it, because I'm struggling. Like, that's, that's a great place to be. Don't feel bad if you're there. The, the danger is when we say, until you show me the goodness of this, until you show me the beauty of this, I refuse to believe it. That's when you... Yeah, well, that's when you become a liberal. I mean, it's, the issue always comes down to biblical authority. Will we? I was, talk, I was talking to Jake Hopper two days ago, yesterday, about this. There he is. I was talking about this yesterday in your truck. Um, Jacob was kind enough to follow me while I returned to the U-Haul. 
And the issue of submitting to biblical authority is never seen in those passages that we put on the wall and we crochet and we... Those are the ones we like, right? That's not... Don't tell me you submit to the Bible because you believe John 3.16. Tell me you submit to the Bible in the places where I don't like it naturally. It's not what I would have done. I don't get it. That's where we find out submission to the Word of God. Find me the place that you most are inclined to disagree with. That you find the heart, you find the teachings of the Bible that you find to be the ugliest, the hardest, the sharpest edged, and tell me what you do there, and then we'll know what you do with this authority of Scripture. And it's totally okay, like Job said, "I don't understand." But naked I came into the world, naked I left. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's fine place to be. Um, the issue is when we be say where Job eventually starts to get to. I, th- I think you need to explain yourself, God. I think, I think you, you owe me an explanation. And when Job starts to get to that point, that's when God speaks him out of the whirlwind and says, who are you? So God has said much to us. And I'm not trying to say it just simply comes down to just trust him. But at the end of the day, it is going to be that. He has said, and there's plenty we could say in his books on original sin we can look at, but, but um, it, these are hard, hard issues. And anyway, I've done a lot of... Yammering there, I'll give you at least a few minutes to respond. Yes. Yes, Renee. Kind of on a different oh. um, path. In Ephesians 2, the second, what we covered today, yeah. being alive together, he made us alive together with him, he raised us up with him, he seated us with him, and we have victory over sin now because of his death. So why do we still, I mean, I know we sin, but is it possible then, we read in Ephesians 2, that it would be possible for us not to sin, being in him with all these things that he accomplished for us? Yes, theoretically, if you don't That's live right. long okay. enough, if you live very short. <laughs> I know, I, said, I know, we no, do, no, 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 but the possibility much. is has been. We do well. I said it. Well, I'm more comfortable saying that I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I, I'm, I'm only, I'm only qualifying it because I don't want to do what Wesleyan perfectionism does, and the, the higher second blessing charismatic thing that you can reach some level of sinless perfection. We do not sin of necessity. Nothing makes us sin. When we sin, we choose to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. When you're a slave to sin, you could do nothing but obey your master. Um, we don't, when we sin, it's not that way. We sin because we choose to, because we go back to our... The analogy I heard is like of a slave who's been freed, but you're so used to jumping to when your master calls. And when your, your defeated master says, Come! Click on this. Come, eat and drink this. We can. We don't have to. You're free. Don't do it. So Paul's in a. Let's close out in Ephesians. Ephesians four um, is take off, put on, renew. Take off the old man. Stop living like you used to live. The very fact that Paul has to tell them that implies some of them are doing it. Right. So um, Ephesians four, seventeen. This I say and testify in the Lord. You must. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. There's some implication that to some degree the Ephesians are in fact doing that. But you couldn't tell an unbeliever to stop doing that. Unbelievers can swap their sins, but they can never, without faith it's impossible to please God. An unbeliever can't stop sinning in any measure. All they do in one degree or another is sin. Um, But here Paul can say, hey, stop doing what the Gentiles do. And if you jump down, um, verse 22, put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And honestly, the, one of the reasons why I think there's such a pattern in the church of early morning Bible reading and prayer is I get out of the bed in the morning, and if I'm not careful, I just put on the old man. I don't even think about it. it it's, it's natural. It's easy. It's comfortable in a sense. And I got to remind myself first thing in the morning, whoa, that's not who I am anymore. That's not who my master is anymore. Just because some part of me says, feed me, you know, do what I want. I don't need to obey anymore. I've been freed. Um, so I do not sin of necessity. Now, can I live sinlessly for the rest of my life? Well, if somebody kills me in the next 20 seconds, possibly. I mean, conceptually, right? But I want to guard on the other side. There is a, there is a teaching out there that's errant that you can somehow achieve sinless perfection. And, and Paul makes it clear he's going to struggle with sin for the rest of his life. I, I think a better picture is this. God shines. If you think that I'm covered in filth, God shines his light with the spirit on some portion of me that he wants with his help for me to clean. I can realistically hope to clean that. He's going to show me some other part. He hasn't, in his mercy, he has not shown me all of my sin. But he's put his finger on, and I'm guessing he's put his finger on some areas in your life that he, he intends, he's brought conviction and he's brought people to talk to you about. That he intend, and you can really hope to change and grow and become more like Jesus. He's not done. There's plenty more. There's, and so I think that's a better picture of the Christian life is real change, real growth in that area that he's shown on you. But he's not done. He's going to show you some other stuff. And you're never going to get to the end of that process in this life but you will make real progress. Mary, microphone. This will be good. I think it will be. Oh. I, believe, I believe in you, Mary. <laughs> so what in Scripture is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and soul. Do you think for 20 seconds you could keep that? R.C. Sproul certainly doesn't. Yeah, no. I don't either. Yeah. So tend, could you be sinless for... No, let me, well, let me say this. I, think, I tend to think it's more like this. Paul talks about, um, Paul talks about t- our works being tested by fire, right? I, I think that even, I'll quote here, I'll, I'll quote um, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. There's enough sin in my best prayer to damn the whole world. Which is to say, my motives are always mixed. I, I doubt I ever have 100% pure motives. And so... All the things that I've done, even the things that I've done in an attempt to serve God, that are done from the wrong motive, the sermons I've preached because I hope people will think I'm smart or clever, the, the things I've done so that people see me, to the degree that I even obey God and preach the gospel, but I do it for the wrong reason, to the degree, that's going to all burn up. My hope is that after that burns up, there, along with it is a growing, there'll be some little like you know um, smudge of bronze with all the chaff burnt up, that part, so, so like, I'll, I'll, I'll go home today, and I'll think back, and I'll even listen to the sermon, and I'll, I will, I'm well aware that I care what you guys think in a way that I shouldn't. Um, I think there's a way I can care what you think is right. I hope I do that too. And you got to discount that, and, and you know, and I'll, I'll evaluate how I thought it went, and, and how, and I will have right motives, and I, will have, and I will be aware of right motives and wrong motives for why I'm even doing what I'm doing right now. My hope is that in, with, and along bad motives or unrighteous motives or unpure motives are, and hopefully a growing amount, of good motives. 
So there's still a real growth, a real becoming more like Jesus. I don't think there's, I wouldn't claim there's anything I've done that is 100% pure gold through and through in an action. But I still hope there is a growing amount of righteous motivations that part of, a growing part of why I do what I do is pleasing to God and comes from faith. Um, so I still want to insist there is a real goal of growth, a real goal of, of change, a real goal of, of pleasing the Lord. We can now actually please God. Um, but I, part of maturing in the faith is understanding the complexity of our heart and how many different motives are at play. You, you, you think it's really simple. I did because I love Jesus. Did you, did even the flickering thought enter your mind of what someone else thought about it? Yep. Okay, so you did it because you love Jesus and because you care what they think. Oh, yeah. And, and you notice that more and more as you go on in, in the faith. And so you can chase your tail so long you can just sort of, you know, go crazy with it. But just recognize, yeah, I'd say with just what, it, I'm not aware of anything I've done that I couldn't pick out wrong motives as well. And praise God, he bears with our weakness, he knows our frame, and he gives grace. And at the end of the day, I'm not earning my righteousness. At the end of the day, I'm just trying to be a child who the father looks at as somewhat faithful. I hope that I'll be, you know what I mean? I hope that, that's my hope, is that I'm like one of my kids imperfectly, you know, my kids will help out and do stuff, and I'll find out they want to play iPod or something too, and you're like, oh, okay. But I'm also hoping they're doing it because they want to be my sons, and they want to please me, and they want to please their mother, and I think it's a mixed bag with my kids, you know? And I don't utterly detest them for that. Even as... When I see them obeying me and serving and, and pleasing and doing those things that please us, rightly, I'm more pleased in them. My pleasure in them waxes and wanes, grows and it falls. Anyway, that's a long answer, Mary. No, I don't think I've ever loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind for 20 seconds straight. Maybe 20 seconds if you cut and paste and add it together, but <laughs> never 20 minutes, seconds straight. Thank you. We're over time. Thank you very much. You've been very patient. God bless. See you all next week. <laughs>